Hello everyone, uh, I am Arvind Agarwal, founder and CEO of C4D Partners. Broadly speaking, you can classify equity investors into two buckets. Those who invest in public markets and those who invest in private equity. As an example, a mutual fund is a public market investor that invests in listed stocks. Private equity investors are further split into two broad buckets as PE investors and VC investors. By the end of this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, you will have a deeper understanding of the difference between a PE investor and a VC investor. And you will also understand the mind of the PE investor. Arvind Agarwal is a veteran PE investor who is marrying his deep experience as a PE investor with impact investing, which is basically the practice of investing in companies that are creating social or environmental impact. Stay tuned for Akshay's fascinating conversation with Arvind Agarwal, in which he learns how to think like a PE investor. So uh, you've been a veteran of the PE VC space. Uh, just take us through your career path. Uh, you know what what led up to you starting your own fund. Sure. So I'm not sure about the veteran, uh, but definitely sure about my experience in the PE space, but not the VC because you know in my mind uh, there's a very clear distinction between the two strategies. My journey uh, started quite uh, quite some time back, uh, Akshay. I was 15 and I come from a moderately economic uh, background and from a very small town called Purulia. And at the age of 15, you know, things were financially not looking that great and I was looking for an escape route. And that's where I stumbled upon an English newspaper. And the front page of that had an article uh, about a private equity uh, firm. I don't remember the name. I don't remember the name of the person, the picture I saw. But that person looked, uh, you know, uh, quite happy to me and rich. And at the age of 15, these are the two things I wanted. I wanted to be happy. I wanted to be rich. Uh, This was the era, no internet. And in my mind, I decided I'll be a private equity professional. Didn't know how. Fascinating. Fascinating. And the journey... Share one quick anecdote here. I, I have interviewed another uh, VC fund uh, founder, and uh, he had a very similar story that he watched Pretty Woman, and the character of Richard Gere in Pretty Woman is like a <laughs> PE fund guy, and that is what influenced him. So this seems to be some sort of common theme between people who get into the PE VC space. Yeah, this was the era we were we didn't have access to uh, English movies, so maybe you know I would have been inspired much before than the than the age of fifteen. Yeah. But yes, the journey yeah. started from there. Uh, you know, it's been twenty eight years now. Wow. Okay. Uh, so, just like a quick summary, what what did you what organizations, what roles, what did you learn in each of those? So after my uh, post graduation, I joined uh, eValueServe India Private Limited. It's a third party research organization based out of headquartered in Gurgaon. Uh, there, I was uh, doing research for two Asian based private equity firms. Uh, you know, this was an outsourced research, so researching on the companies they are looking at. Uh, this was a short short stint, and then I moved to Goldman Sachs uh, Private Equity Group. This was 2007. Uh, that that was my longest uh, part in how, my career. How did you crack Goldman Sachs? Uh, I, I would have thought you would need like some 
pedigree of like an IIM tag and all of that. Yeah, so that was also an interesting uh, episode, uh, Akshay, because, uh, you know, a lot of people applied for it and it was a founding team which was put together uh, by Goldman Sachs uh, in Bangalore in 2007. The idea was uh, that this team will kind of be a back office for the main teams which are sitting across the globe. Uh, when I applied for Goldman Sachs, it was a long drawn process, five rounds of interviews. And uh, then after 10 days, I received a call saying, hey, you didn't make it. Okay. Uh, so obviously I was rejected because Goldman Sachs was one place I wanted to be. Then after a week or 10 days, I received the call again from uh, the consultant and she says, uh, hey, you made it. i like, what, <laughs> what happened? They said, no, you were actually, they were hiring three people. You were the fourth one. And one of the three people declined to take mm-hmm. the offer. So it went mm-hmm. to you and super excited uh, and uh, joined and very quickly in three months uh, you know the roles changed from you know just being a captive it become more like uh, diligencing the funds researching the funds working with the fund managers so if i think on day one if the objective was uh, that it will be a front-ending team probably i would not have made it because i don't have a you know i am or a ivy league tag with me which usually you see with people in this part of the world Hmm. Okay. And uh, what what was your role there at Goldman Sachs? What did you do? So uh, I joined as a senior analyst and uh, primarily this, uh, this department used to look at uh, investing in fund managers. So we were investing in uh, funds across the globe and uh, direct co-investments. I did that for four years and then moved to hedge uh, fund of funds. Where uh, so Goldman Sachs fund. had its own fund uh, which was deploying the strategy. It was uh, Goldman Sachs' own uh, fund of fund. So just like a GP, they had uh, raised money from uh, big LPs for this fund of fund. And the main objective was to invest in private equity and uh, yeah, private equity funds and hedge funds. Mm. Okay, so this would be like uh, creating an index fund in a way. Uh... Uh, not an index fund as such, but it is like a creating a you know fund, mutual fund, you know, raising money from endowments and uh, insurance right. companies, and then investing in fund managers. Okay, uh, one quick clarification before you tell me about the, the hedge fund uh, role you did at Goldman. Uh, you said that uh, there is a very clear demarcation between private equity and VC. Uh, what is that demarcation? Because the very same company on its cap table might have Sequoia, which is clearly a VC, and might also have maybe, I guess, General Atlantic would be like a PE or uh, so, you know, or, or like maybe Westbridge would be a PE. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm not fully clear, but I know that on the cap table of one startup, both can exist in parallel. So what is the clear demarcation between a PE and a VC? See, both can definitely exist uh, in the cap table of a company. It's about the role uh, or the strategy once executed. The the line between P and VC is getting blurred uh, day by day. So if you look at traditionally what used to happen is company starts and they were you know raising money from friends and family, angel round, and then uh, they approach a VC fund. A VC takes the largest risk at that point in time with a higher check because the product is not ready and most of this investment is going uh, to create the product you know technology and vc kind of goes hand in hand so it was always funding for the development of the tech product and uh, once the product hits the market and company turns profitable it's cash flow positive a p walks in with a larger check for growth of the company 
Now what has happened is, uh, if you particularly if you see in India, uh, we see uh, invest and it's not to fund the uh, product development, uh, which is a technology play, but it is more to fund the OPEX losses. And this has become a nev- never-ending process. So if the company is not operating cash flow positive, a PE will not walk in. And which is why you see now larger VC funds and they call themselves late stage VC. And another interesting thing which is happening here is a lot of PE funds are now seeing, hey, we are losing out on opportunities because you know most of the deals which are going to the growth stage, we can't do it. It's not cash flow positive. So there's this concept of early stage private equity, which is cropped okay. up, where okay. you know P kind of comes in early stage. And if you look at us, we are also you know an early stage private equity fund. Okay, interesting. So you're saying traditionally a PE looks at cash flow positive businesses. Uh, so it's looking at the business the way a public market investor is looking at a business, the fundamentally strong, profitable business, which will. Uh, return which will give a reasonable return on investment uh, it's not taking like big bets uh, that okay i will invest in 20 and out of them one big bet will happen and it will make up for the 19 bad bets that, that's yeah so exactly so just number is slightly different uh, a p usually works in a fund 15 to 20 companies and all the companies are as important as you know any other company in the portfolio because they can't tend to lose uh, portfolio companies uh, from the uh, from their uh, bucket of the portfolio and uh, you know one or two uh, will go down but majority of the portfolio will drive the return uh, uh, for the fund Whereas in a VC, if you see, it's more of a you know a spray and pray where you will probably do 40 transactions and you will pray that four of the 40 turns out really well. And that will kind of recoup all the returns for the other uh, investments that has gone down. So it's also about the focus and which is why PE uh, funds uh, you know, uh, focus quite a lot with respect to operations, management, strategy. That's another reason why they can't have a larger portfolio because it's very difficult to be operationally and strategically involved with a large set of companies in your portfolio. Right. Okay. So a PE fund would want uh, to carefully look at numbers and advise management based on what they see on the numbers and like take a more active role uh, as a consultant to the founders or the leadership team. Uh, okay. How, you know, you were responsible for deciding which fund manager to back at Goldman Sachs. Uh, what's the way in which you evaluated and took that decision? So actually the analysis, uh, you know, split into two parts. One is the qualitative and the other is the quantitative. On the quantitative, uh, we look at the past performance. There is a lot of slice and dice which is done with respect to uh, the portfolio companies of the previous funds to understand which partner, which geography, which sector, which strategy kind of worked uh, uh, for the fund and uh, against the fund. And uh, a lot of those type of uh, analysis is done, including value creation. So, uh, you know, unlike... uh, a VC fund in private equity, it's all about the operational efficiency and the operational growth. So we do something called value creation analysis, where we try to understand how the value was created in the company. Was it uh, by increasing the EBITDA or uh, is it just by reducing the net debt or it is just increasing the multiple uh, of uh, EBITDA or revenue that we are using? So a lot of those type of uh, quantitative analysis happens and then qualitative to understand the market, the strategy which the fund manager is executing, the team strength, you know, things like that. 
so these are a set of two analysis that we do to understand uh, which fund manager to back, back versus you know which to ignore and is there also a consideration that okay we already have one fund manager who's focused on tech startups in india so we will not back another fund which is on the same like like diversification uh... so uh, high level di- diversification happens so you know the way fund of fund also works because just like a fund there is a strategy of the the fund of fund so fund of fund will not say hey i'll you know just pick one of each so the fund of fund strategy could be backing uh, tech Uh, VC funds in India, right? So there some diversification might come with respect to sectors, subsectors, but that will not be huge. So all the twenty or twenty-five fund managers in that fund of fund would be tech VC. Some might be deep tech, some might be you know working on health tech, you know things like that. But all will be uh, quite uh, similar with respect to tech exposure. Okay. Okay. And so, after the first four years, uh, you said that you uh, went into a separate division. Uh, what was that? So, <clears throat> after first four years, I went into uh, the hedge fund of funds uh, division of uh, Goldman Sachs. And uh, here also, so, so a bit of a background here, which is very important to where we are today as a country when it comes to private investment. So, this team was put together in two thousand seven. Uh, and you know and that was the time when the idea was that private equity in india will become big uh, we joined in may and if you remember there was a financial crisis which happened 2007 december and 2008 january uh, unfortunately at that point in time a uh, lot of uh, pe funds uh, in india they had uh, a high amount of exposure with respect to public investments which is in our language called pipe uh, private uh, investments in public enterprises 2008 when the crisis happened a lot of these fund managers kind of doubled down on their uh, public investments and uh, as you would know the markets remained choppy for a couple of years after that and that led to a, a bad uh, reputation for private equity in india and uh, private e- equity didn't grow as it should have grown in the past uh, decade then for us you know it was more of working with uh, fund managers outside of india and that was not the main objective of the uh, you know the team which was put put together and that's when uh, in 2011 uh, goldman sachs was kind of deciding to uh, shut down the team for private equity in india and that's where i moved to hedge fund of funds uh, public market was uh, growing though uh, hedge fund again in india is not big uh, but uh, globally it's a very big market and that's how i moved to hedge fund of uh, what's now, a hedge fund so hedge fund uh, can have uh, different strategies uh, there are four four broad strategies that you see hedge fund managers execute uh, but it's mainly uh, dealing with uh, public markets so you can be dealing in uh, debt instrument uh, currency uh, could be one strategy equities uh, you have different strategies so it's largely Uh, two key aspect i would say one is uh, public market and two uh, these are very high risk bets so unless uh, a pe fund where if you have 1 dollar you invest 1 dollar uh, a hedge fund will invest 100 dollars when they have 1 dollar so you can see your entire capital wipe out in a day or you could make a 100% return in a day 
Okay, okay. So, so, so they would take more leveraged bets using like options and futures. Uh, okay, okay. Uh, Hindenburg, which uh, had gone after Adani, is also a hedge fund. No, it's uh, not a hedge fund. It's more of a, uh, I know, it's a mixed terminology you can give them because. Uh, one, they call themselves a research organization where they kind of do these type of research. But uh, Hindenburg, they actually take an exposure before making the research public. So there is a vested interest as well. Right? So it, they don't uh, do typical hedge fund work. Uh, but, uh, you know, this what happened uh, on the Adani episode, this is more of a, you know, you can do better research. But before you make your research uh, public, you will take your own bet. So you also, uh, you know, gain advantage, not just because of the research, but also the market sentiment that you are creating. Okay, okay, okay. Plus, it gives you skin in the game, in a way, like your research will be seen as more credible if you're putting money behind it. Yeah, but hedge fund managers, on the uh, other hand, uh, they have their own research when they take their bet, but they never make that research public. Okay, got it. Okay, okay. Uh, I, I think there was another uh, wire card in Europe. Uh, I remember reading an article about how a hedge fund ultimately kind of exposed them. They had done deep research and discovered that wire card was a fraud. Yeah, hedge fund is a... I don't know how to, uh, what should be the right word, but it's it's a very difficult and uh, uh, sketchy uh, business as such because uh, of the strategy they follow and the type of returns they make. I mean, not one, there are many instances uh, in the past which has happened where, you know, hedge funds are total fraud with respect to how they operate and all, and not all hedge fund managers, right? But uh, the probability uh, of, you know, something happening wrong is quite high given uh, how close they keep the cards to their chest about their strategy, what they are doing, their transactions. So a lot of, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, for them, it's very important uh, for a lot of transaction that the information don't go out. And for a lot of transaction, it makes sense that the information go out. Okay, got it. Right. Okay. So then you uh, were into a fund of hedge funds, uh, like you were backing hedge fund managers for Goldman Sachs. Yes, uh, so that was again a short stint, and uh, by that time I was already too much into private equity. So it was, you know, then the question which came to my mind: uh, what's important to me, what I do, or where I do, and what I do was more important than where. So I started looking out, and uh, then uh, shifted to Middle East, uh, Abu Dhabi, and joined a local private equity fund manager based out of Abu Dhabi. I would have, would not have ever left Goldman Sachs because that was one organization I really enjoyed uh, my time. So if it was uh, not for the fact that the private equity is shutting down in India, I would have probably remained there. But uh, private equity kind of, uh, by that time, it was more than you know a dream of a 15-year-old child. It was something I was thoroughly enjoying. Okay, okay. So, uh, and that Abu Dhabi uh, PE was investing where, like uh, in, in India? Or? Uh, no, not India. So, we were investing in uh, GCC uh, countries. Uh, direct uh, investments uh, were done through one of the funds. 
we were also doing real estate investments uh, in uh, UAE and also London. So we had a listed entity in London. And third, we had uh, what we call a secondary fund of fund. So the secondary fund of fund is uh, different from a primary fund of fund uh, in the aspect that uh, a primary fund of fund is when I invest in a new fund. You know, a manager is uh, launching. It could be their third fund, fourth fund, but I am an investor from day one. And as you know, private equity investments are illiquid. You are locked in for uh, eight, nine, ten years. Uh, secondary fund of fund actually buys the LP stake of an existing fund. So we also had a secondary fund of fund at Goldman Sachs and at Abu Dhabi Capital Management, where we used to buy the LP stakes uh, of other funds. And you would probably get some discount in return uh, because you're providing liquidity. So, so uh, depending on the quality of the fund managers, uh, the discount could vary from 90% to even a premium. So there are some cases where we actually gave a premium. But largely, you would see a discount of 40, 50, 60% uh, when buying the stake. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Right. Uh, then what next after the Abu Dhabi stint? So, uh, again, it was uh, a short stint uh, because though I was enjoying uh, uh, my work, but uh, the work culture in UAE is something which I was not able to uh, gel well. And uh, after uh, some 13, 14 months, I decided I was quite done. It was uh, almost eight, nine years. And uh, uh, P space is, uh, you know, it takes uh, a toll on your uh, health, be it physical or mental. And I was... At a, at a stage in life where I was like, I have already worked for 16, 17 years, uh, you know, eight year was equivalent to 16, 17. I said, let me go back to my hometown and try to do something of my own. And uh, I uh, went back to Dhanbad, which uh, again, I call hometown, uh, but that's not where I'm born uh, and brought up. It's just my uh, family, uh, siblings and my parents, they moved. Uh, I was born in Bengal. So I moved to uh, Dhanbad and I started a rural BPO. So I went there and I, you know, kind of started looking around what to do. Realized there's a uh, there's a big population of youngsters who are graduates, who are, uh, you know, engineers, and they are working in uh, Calcutta. And at that time, most of these people were getting a salary of 15,000, 12,000 a month, where almost 60, 70% they were spending on food and housing. They would have any day wanted to, you know, work in their hometown uh, where their families are and work for as, you know, five thousand, six thousand, seven thousand. And uh, these these people were computer literate, uh, so easily, you know, they can do uh, uh, conversion work, you know, non non voice uh, uh, processes. So I started that, and uh, it was uh, a total failure. Thirteen months, uh, I tried to establish a business uh, yeah, but didn't succeed and was after... it that uh, you were not able to get business or was it that you were not able to execute so it was mix of uh, uh, challenges uh, Akshay. one uh, i was a single person kind of do everything with respect to operations business development getting new clients uh, the the business uh, community or the way business work in eastern india is very different than what we are used to right being uh, in the space uh, all my career at that time uh, there are certain level of expectation there are certain level of commitment which are not to be said eastern india is a very different different business community so that was but also you, one of the you could have got business from even airtel or you know any any national player because this is yes uh, like 
we were actually i was trying all those things in fact that was the time when uh, you know post office uh, digitization was happening so all the post office records were getting digitized uh, fir's were getting uh, digitized unfortunately all these contracts you can only get as a subcontract you know you're not a big player to get a main contract and when you get a subcontract which is what i had uh, you are dependent on the main contractor with respect to your payment and uh, you know the way they you know take decisions with respect to uh, how much they are going to pay you and when and whether they are going to pay you or not it's very uh, different business yeah we have to yeah i can imagine that's a cash flow challenging business i mean working with government is profitable but cash flow challenging yeah and this was this was not also you know directly working with the government it's like uh, yeah, with yeah, the contract the, the so they are even, exactly yeah, yeah, and plus they will profit. then not pay you on time or they will not pay you at all and one invoice not getting paid you know you're losing too much money right 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 okay got it okay uh, so what then like once you tested failure <laughs> yes I tested failure but i i think uh, of all my career the the, the uh, 10 years that i spent this was one and a half years where i enjoyed the most i mean surprisingly uh, every day uh, was a challenge but every day i was happier so you know i realized that this is where the uh, happiness uh, lies for me or this is this is what i enjoy the most so then the idea was how how do you how do i merge the two things that i really like in my life one is uh, investing and uh, the other is early stage and at that time i also realized uh, akshay because uh, see uh, when i joined my first job e value serve it was a one, one and a half year old organization so pretty much kind of a startup goldman sachs was a uh, you know organization which has been there for uh, ages but this was a new team which was uh, set up uh, in uh, bangalore similarly my abu dhabi uh, i joined them and it was a one year old organization so somehow i was in that uh, zone of one two years uh, type of older organization or team and uh, that's what i realized when i uh, failed in my uh, venture that this is one space i enjoy so i started looking out uh, to see if i can merge the two and uh, there has been a gradual decrease with respect to check size so in goldman sachs the average check size was 50 to 100 million dollars at abu dhabi the average check size was was 5 to 10 million dollars so then i started looking for opportunities and that's when uh, i came across uh, uh, you know uh, eco investments which uh, is a former name of c4d partners check size half a million early stage investing uh, working very closely with the founders and i thought uh, you know this is something which is kind of uh, ticking both the boxes but at the same time one year stint which i had uh, in dhanbad i also uh, realized uh, you know the the impact that these businesses can make right i was uh, i hired 15 people in my organization all 15 were very happy i was not able to pay them for the first two months and they still turned up for the third month they said no no we want you to be successful because if you are not successful we will have to go back to calcutta and we don't want to have that life in fact after a year when i shut down and i joined eco you know some of those employees kept on calling uh, are you thinking of doing something else and then you know we would really like to come. so that was another angle which i understood uh, to be honest before that i didn't understand uh, you know this angle writing a 50 to 100 million check and being at goldman sachs you don't really understand what goes on the ground 
with respect to rural. So uh, Eco Investments or C4D Partners uh, 2014, it kind of uh, ticked that box as well. And that's where my new journey of impact investing started. What was the thesis of Eco? So uh, Eco, uh, it's a Dutch NGO and primary funding for them was uh, the Ministry uh, of Foreign Affairs uh, in the Netherlands. So it used to be a five-year budgeting and they used to get money from the government to execute project. In 2010, they already knew that uh, the next year budget, the next, uh, uh, that is 2015 budget is going to be uh, significantly lower. So they wanted to uh, diversify uh, businesses. So they uh, started an investing app called Impact Investing uh, Eco Investment with the idea that uh, this fund uh, will support private companies which will help uh, with their projects that they are running in the country. So it was very much uh, internal uh, looking strategy, which was that uh, for eco. And uh, it, uh, eco investment was a subsidiary, which I joined in 2014. However, soon we realized this is not doable. Investing has to be uh, disciplined and it has to have its own autonomy. Uh, you can't uh, invest money with an objective of, you know, working or uh, uh, or supporting a project, not for pro- profit project uh, for the organization. And uh, 2016, we realized this. And 2017, I kind of spun out of Eco and became an independent fund manager. That's where the name changed to C4D Partners or Capital for Development Partners. And... Uh... What does it mean to spin out? Like you, uh, you bought out their share, or like what does that mean when you say you spun out? Yes, so uh, basically, hundred percent ownership earlier was with Eco Corporation, and uh, then I kind of bought out the shares, and uh, it hundred percent shareholding uh, came to the team. Okay, and you had other co-founders with you. Yes, uh, so I had other co-founders uh, from the Netherlands, uh, you know, who were part of Eco Corporation at that time, and they also. So the entire team kind of came out, and uh, uh, me and my partners kind of acquired the shares. Okay, and I'm guessing this would have been nominally priced. Uh, if they would nominally have... priced, yes. Right, right, right. Because their goal is to make it a success rather than to uh, get a return on. Got it. Okay, that's okay, correct, yes. and. Uh, and some corpus also came along with that. You had a yes, corpus so, to invest. Uh, so before that, uh, we were investing uh, from you know the balance sheet of uh, Eco Corporation, and uh, at that time we also kind of realized uh, because we were trying to fundraise uh, in that uh, uh, fund which was there by uh, Eco Corporation, and there were three challenges we uh, realized. So it was at that time it was a global fund. We were investing in Africa, Latin America. Uh, South Asia, Southeast Asia. So when we started talking to LPs, uh, three, three main concerns came. One, the uh, ownership of the uh, asset management entities with uh, another institution. And that's where we kind of spun out. The second was uh, a global like fund. So LPs want the fund manager to have skin in the game. Yes. So, you know, because and if the that LPs... Was not the case. Yes, mm-hmm. that was not the case. If GP is not owning... Uh, uh, the entity, they will leave uh, any point in time and that uh, puts right. the fund or the investment at risk. The uh, second was a global fund. 
So none of the LPs were ready to invest in a fund which was investing globally. It was too wide uh, spread. So that's when we also decided that we will not invest globally. We kind of shut down operations in Africa, Latin America. We uh, cut down a lot of countries in uh, Asia. And we said we'll focus on three countries, India, Indonesia, and Philippines. The uh, uh, the third concern uh, at that time was uh, that it's a open-ended fund. So the fund which we were trying to raise money for uh, that didn't have a fund life it was you know kind of a company structure you could say so that's when we also kind of launched our first closed ended fund in 2017 so these were the three main concerns which we addressed uh, and uh, we closed our first fund in 2018 a $30 million fund okay amazing and and this $30 million was from what kind of uh, LPs or limited partners and just for listeners, so like a limited partner is the one who gives money to the fund manager and the fund manager invests it on behalf of the limited partner. And in return, the fund manager gets to keep some amount of profit share plus some management fees on, based on how much money he is managing. That's correct. So uh, LP kind of invest in the fund, which is managed by the GP or the general partner. And they're entitled to a management fee for running the operations and a share in the profit which is generated by the fund. And typically management fees is like a 1-2% kind of a... Depending on the size of the fund, yes, it ranges between 1% and 2%. And the profit share is, I think, about 20% or something like that in that range? So traditionally 20%, uh, but now depending on... So, you know, you see a lot of different uh, combination. And I'm talking about really successful big funds where uh, you would see that some manager will say, hey, I'll charge 1% fee because it's a big fund, but I'll charge 30% uh, carried interest or the profit share. So that is something also you see uh, quite a lot. Okay. Okay. And typically there's a, like a hurdle rate you have to cross, like you have to generate some minimum return on investment before you are entitled to a profit share. Yes. So there is a hurdle rate uh, always with respect to the profit share. And uh, it could again range between eight to 10% uh, is what you have to first uh, generate return for the LPs. Once you have crossed that hurdle, that's when you are entitled to take the profit share. And uh, how is uh, the return calculated? Because if these are not uh, publicly listed uh, assets, uh, like, you know, you could put any number on it in a way. So <laughs> how, how do you calculate the returns? Yeah, I think we uh, we can do a separate uh, podcast just on this topic. You know, how do the valuation <laughs> of uh, these companies work? Uh, see, for private equity, it's, it's uh, you know, uh, relatively easier because, as I said, these are uh, cash flow driven transactions. So when there is uh, stable cash flow, the valuation becomes more or less, uh, you know, uh, you can have a ballpark figure. You will never be accurate, but the ballpark figure will be, uh, you know, good to use. The challenge is when it, it's a VC portfolio then uh, the creativity that you can have with respect to valuation of this uh, uh, these investment is quite wide so i uh, often say this you know when we were growing up and uh, studying uh, you know that this terminology or this line you always heard that valuation is more of an art than a science 
in current scenario it is just art science has gone out of the window so the bigger artist you are the better valuation you can get but having said that uh, and which is why the uh, uh, the need of uh, auditors uh, also come in uh, for uh, you know kind of checking or cross checking the valuation and uh, agreeing largely these are fine but again for anybody be it the fund manager or the auditor or be the lp or anybody else uh, saying what is the right valuation i think the investor uh, in that company is uh, the right person to say as long as you know they are uh, they are not being too artistic i think they are the one who will get the valuation uh, right but yes there are a lot of gray area when it comes to valuation uh, but sooner or later this is going to come out right if you are uh, you know if you uh, put a very high valuation on the paper for a lot of your companies today it will going to uh, hit you tomorrow so it's not like you will get away with it in the short term maybe you will get away with it but uh, in the medium to long term it will bite you back and if you know as an lp for example uh, when we were talking about my goldman sachs days as an lp if i see that this is what is happening for the all the funds in the past for that fund manager so that is also an underwriting uh, uh, condition that we look at that okay this manager has a habit of uh, allocating a crazy amount of valuation in the past to have a high nav so uh, yeah that also uh, you know works for your longer term where it will not help you Okay, got it, got it. So uh, this thirty million that you raised for your fund one was from what kind of LPs? Indian LPs, or did you go global? And what was the? And this was like an impact investing focused fund. So you would have pitched to LPs that uh, your money will create impact. Yes. So see, I'll. Uh, uh, so first, maybe uh, LPs were non-Indian because this fund was registered in the Netherlands, and it would have been difficult for Indian LPs to uh, invest. We raised money from a Dutch DFI, Dutch Good Growth Fund. Uh, Eco Corporation also became our LP in the fund, and uh, the third LP was uh, Finchurchit, a fund by Finnish government, and the fourth was uh, Investing for Women, uh, another fund by Australian government. So these were the four investors uh, that joined us uh, in our journey. Uh, for me, because I came from a, a private equity background, and the first four years in the space, I kind of observed uh, what is uh, you know happening and how the space is uh, shaping up. Uh, so uh, this is what I noticed. You know, when I joined in 2014, uh, you know, this was my first exposure to impact investing, and that time. Uh, the shift was happening from not for profit or grant making to impact investing a lot of organizations were kind of reorganizing themselves to do impact investing however a lot of underwriting at that point was still done by uh, people from the not for profit sector because the space was not big the salaries were not high and a lot of professionals uh, in the impact uh, in the investing space didn't wanted to join in fact when i also joined in 2014 i took a 70% cut on my uh, two years uh, salary which was two years back uh, so that time i realized a lot of underwriting is happening with respect to uh, you know project perspective three years four years uh, vision and uh, that uh, created an issue with respect to one that the social enterprises or impact investing uh, is not scalable and it is not profitable the only sector which 
proved uh, with respect to performance was financial uh, inclusion that got money from grant impact uh, commercial investor went for ipos and now you see financial institution or investors in financial institution are kind of repeating what has been done and trying to make money but and this was you're a talking of uh, mfis uh... mfis yes mm-hmm. and right. okay. so which is why uh, that was a period uh, 2014 to 18 i also saw uh, lps or investor uh, forcing the gps to move beyond financial uh, institution or mfis that's when other sectors open up like agriculture education healthcare uh, now Unfortunately, uh, by that time, you saw a lot of professionals coming in and uh, smaller fund size, and it was all early stage investing. And by default, uh, the strategy these funds adopted was that of a VC. So we'll invest in these many companies. It was more of uh, underwriting with respect to top line and not cash flow positive. See, these companies are not going to raise money every year. When you are working on uh, working on uh, bringing about systematic change uh, to something, it takes more time, and this is not like all of a sudden tomorrow you'll start getting commercial capital. So that kind of uh, you know created an issue where scalability and value, uh, scalability and exits were not happening in all these sectors, and which is where the shift all of a sudden became a VC type of play, and then everything has to have uh, technology. So there was no talk about education as well, ed tech. There was no talk about healthcare. Now it is health tech and so on and so forth. When we did our fund, uh, we, what we wanted to prove with respect to strategy was that to be successful in India in early stage investing, particularly when you look at impact investing, you have to adopt more of a private equity approach than a VC approach. So uh, our all our underwriting was from a private equity lens. The companies might not be profitable, but they have clear path to profitability in the next 12 months. And then there is a balance between growth and profitability. It'll take more time, yes, but we will not go. We are not going to lose companies because you know they are not financially sustainable, and which we were able to prove. So the strategy was completely woven around, uh, you know, how do you uh, execute a portfolio. And coming back to your point also, so, you know, one, if you don't lose a lot of companies, you're not losing the impact those companies are creating. Two, uh, if you're not taking unnecessary risk and the portfolio construction, uh, so if, you know, our portfolio construction is that we don't lose more than 20% of the portfolio, which is also typically you see in a, a P. Uh, there will be 30-40% of the portfolio where the growth will not be uh, exponential. Uh, they will not raise money year after year, but these are cash flow positive companies. So you can still get an exit through management buyout where you try to recoup the capital at least, and if possible, also the hurdle rate. And we, uh, in our uh, portfolio of 13 companies in India, already have done four such exits uh, where it's a management buyout. The third set of the portfolio is the ones which are growing exponentially, raising capital, uh, you know, every 12 or 18 months. But these are cash flow positive as well, not losing money, profitable companies, but faster growth. There you will exit through a financial or a strategic buyer. Again, making an IRR in the range of 30 to 40%. So if you are only losing 20% of the companies, uh, getting capital and hurdle recouped from uh, the second bucket and a 30, 35% IRR from the third bucket, at the fund level, you can 
easily do an IRR of 25%, which by the way, is a struggle for most of the VC fund also. Right. So if you uh, take out the top quartile VC funds, uh, which are pure play uh, tech type of uh, play, you will see that 25% is a struggle. So you don't have to do anything crazy. It's uh, because this is one thing which I learned in my uh, short stint in my hometown where I was working on uh, the rural BPO. You know, at that time, what I was when I put in investment, I was kind of calculating in my mind that if I have a 10-seater BPO, uh, what is my net profit? And I was looking, if I have a 20-seater BPO, then what is my net profit? So I was looking at the upside. I was not focusing on lot on on the downside. I would have been much better if I had a 5-seater or a 2-seater BPO. So that's where I realized that it's all about protecting your downside and then you work on creating the upside. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Um, these, uh, uh, the 30 million, how long did it take you to deploy it? Or are you still on fund one or have you deployed that? So we are, we are almost uh, fully deployed. We have deployed, we have a very small, uh, dry powder, which is for follow on, uh, investments. We were, uh, uh, last year, uh, by late last year, we were completely deployed with, uh, 10, 15% of the capital left for follow on. That's when we launched our second fund. Uh, unlike our first fund, which was investing in three countries, uh, second fund is uh, 100% India dedicated, $75 million fund, which we are raising right now. Uh, it's uh, the strategy with respect to uh, the portfolio construction, our thinking uh, remains the same. The beginning or the initial check size also remains the same as the higher end of the check size, which will change because of the fund size. And our existing investor has also committed uh, to invest in that fund. Uh, and uh, uh, existing investors alone won't be enough, right? Because this is like more be than double of the last fund you raised. So yes, you would yes. need to. And you'd, you'd be looking at a similar kind of uh, LPs, like uh, uh, sovereign wealth funds and like these kind of uh, funds no. which have a development agenda or... I mean, sovereign wealth fund and all, uh, you know, usually are uh, quite big. So it's more of a, you know, what we call uh, the development financial institutions, which are usually put together by the uh, by the individual countries. They have more of a development agenda. And uh, uh, see, for us, uh, getting the right LP is also very important because uh, what we also did on day one, we wanted to change the status quo with respect to uh, you know, how people look at the structure of a fund, as we were discussing earlier, right? 2% fee, 20% carried interest, uh, 10 years fund life, 5 years investment period. It has become so standard. Nobody is applying or thinking uh, that whether this is what the market needs in India. This is something which worked in the West and we blindly copy pasted uh, uh, this to India. So one of the things which we did uh, in 2018 when we had the first fund, we linked our gender goals. So we have a, we have a strong focus on gender investing. We committed that 30% at least of the portfolio uh, or the AUM has to be invested in women-owned-led enterprises. If we are less than 30%, then we lose carry percentage. And if we are more than 30%, then we gain carry percentage. In our first fund, we have invested 42% of the AUM in women-owned-led enterprises which means we are at a carry of 25%. 
so it's very important for us to reach out to the right set of lps who are ready to you know bring this systematic change when it comes to the structuring of impact funds so we are mindful about uh, you know which are the lps that we are reaching out to who would be ready to make these type of changes in the uh, fund structuring for impact investing okay okay would you also be targeting like say uh, the bill and melinda gates foundation and i think there's a dell uh, michael dell foundation and such uh, uh, like such philanthropic arms of uh, uh, billionaires yes so uh, apart from bfis uh, we are targeting uh, foundations as well those also have good orientation but however we are very clear uh, we will not take any grant money in the fund it has to be uh, you know every every lp uh, in the fund has to be on equal footing so there are a lot of foundations we are in uh, discussion with as a next step once we have had the first closing we would also like to see uh, the indian family offices join because that's another a big pool where uh, the orientation of impact investing is still uh, not there because if the family offices don't start uh, looking at impact investing then i think uh, the impact funds will be largely dependent on foreign capital which is not the right thing in the longer term as well why isn't impact investing mainstream you, you explained to me that you're able to generate a 25% irr or internal rate of return which you told me is more than uh, what the the bulk of funds are able to generate so i mean you're you're actually in like the top percentile in terms of irr why, why isn't this mainstream i mean what's so, uh, holding it back so uh, multiple reasons uh, akshay as i said uh, you know there was this period between 2014 to 2019 where a lot of money flew, flew into impact investing and uh, the way it was executed earlier uh, you know didn't turn out well and i call those uh, teething problem and then all of a sudden uh, impact investing became vc investing it it should have been other way around vc investing should have become impact investing but impact investing kind of became vc investing and everybody started clapping hey the two worlds have merged so it's not two worlds have merged it's you cease to exist kind of a situation so there are two sets of uh, investors i would say one uh, who are disappointed that uh, you know something like this has happened where there is no longer any impact fund and it all moved towards uh, vc investing and the second set who who wants to focus more on the commercial uh, side of things so we kind of you know the sector lost, lost both i go to somebody who is uh, you know in, into impact investing the moment i call we have an impact fund they will like always question one either you will fail to uh, deliver with respect to impact and a decent financial performance or i am going to operate like a vc in the garb of impact investing Mm, okay got it got it uh, is an esg fund uh, similar to an impact fund and esg stands for environment social governance uh, and these are funds which are investing uh, i guess the difference with these funds typically do public market investing right they don't do private market investing an esg fund um, no actually uh, so you know first thing first esg and impact investing are two completely different things and uh, there was a lot of interchange in, you know people were using both these terms interchangeably quite a lot and uh, which forced me to write an article around it where i says 
ESG investing okay. is not impact investing. Okay. Yeah, what and is I the difference? Can you? Yeah. So there are a lot of uh, differences. Uh, see, when uh, ESG investing is more about assessing your risk, you know, when you're investing in a company. So you look at, and uh, and which is why you see, uh, uh, you know, a lot of public companies falling into that uh, purview of ESG because it's large corporates, large companies, the impact on uh, E, S or G could be uh, significant. When you're talking about early stage investing, you know, companies that are one year, two so, years, but, but, three but, years. One, one second, sorry. So an ESG investing thesis is that uh, companies which today might have similar cash flows or similar EBITDA uh, percentages, would in future differ based on how much uh, they are cognizant of ESG risks. So a company which, like both companies are earning the same amount of cash, but if one company is more cognizant of ESG risks, then it has a brighter future. So you invest in those companies which are cognizant of uh, what is the environmental risk of their business or the social risk or, uh, or the governance uh, levels. Uh, that's the thesis. That's the thesis, yes. When it, you know, look at uh, at the higher level, but uh, you know, this is when we look at uh, ESG versus impact investing. ESG is more backward looking. You look at how the company has been operating in the uh, past years and what are the ESG risks, and you try to minimize those risks going forward, which could have a business implication in the longer term. Whereas impact investing is more forward looking. You proactively uh, take actions to achieve a particular uh, goal. Unlike ESG, which is very generic, you know, you need to kind of take care of a lot of things. Impact investing, for example, for us, it is the focus is genderless investing. So that's our key focus that we need to bring diversity when it comes to uh, the organizations, uh, in uh, you know, or the fund managers investing uh, in companies or the companies uh, which we are investing in, the supply chain. Right? That's our focus. That's the impact that we want to create. Somebody might have an impact with respect to uh, working with blue-collar workers, that we have to give them a dignified life, you know, uh, minimum living wages, things like that. So you can have uh, any impact criteria uh, given the, uh, the problem that you want to solve. Whereas ESG, you'll have to look at holistically everything. Now, see, what happens is... Uh, most of uh, the bigger organization, it's easier for them to kind of make this assessment, invest for the future when it comes to ESG. Early stage investing or early stage companies, if you sit with them, they're trying to sustain on a daily basis and you say, hey, this is how you have to be uh, you know, operating with respect to ESG. It doesn't work. And we realize that, which is why we, uh, uh, you know, it took us a year and we developed our own toolkit around ESG. To ensure that it is not binary it's not that you are either doing this or not doing this and give them a roadmap for the next five years saying okay this is what you could do in the next five years to increase your esg scorecard now uh, because impact investing was very specific and a uh, uh, lot of people failed to deliver the, those specific results they kind of used esg as a better tool where it is so generic it's very difficult for anybody to tell that you failed or you succeeded in delivering what you said. So it's it's unfortunate, at least in my opinion, it was a strategy to kind of uh, paint everything so uh, generic that it's very difficult to question anybody. 
and uh, this was also it it made lot of sense for larger funds uh, doing large investment to you know be esg compliant but a small fund uh, you know 100 million 200 million uh, type of fund size or 500 million saying we have an esg strategy uh, that's it got it okay uh, impact investing is essentially uh, and there could be two ways of looking at it one is uh, you are investing in companies which are creating some sort of positive social impact like say generating employment or uh you know let's say mobility making it easier for uh, access or opening up markets or bringing in transparency or uh helping let's say farmers with price discovery cutting out middlemen those kind of businesses uh, or the other could be you are investing in uh, like say women irrespective of what their business is it could be a woman who is doing a let's say who's building a saas product for banks to use there is you could can't really say it's like there is any impact angle in it but because it's a woman founder so you would invest and that would qualify as impact investing like what is what's the way to think about what is impact investing so uh, the good and the bad thing about impact investing is there is no set definition what is impact investing okay the good thing is because uh, you see a problem and you want to solve it you can solve it you know uh, you can have a definition for yourself for that problem that you are solving and which is also the worst thing about impact investing since there is no definition anybody can call anything impact investing so it's a double edge sword to your uh, question uh, see for us at least uh, both has to uh, you know matter or both has to tick so one it has to you know we need we need to see that our minimum percentage of the portfolio is women owned led which is representation uh, in the portfolio but we also uh, need to ensure the, the second level which is the impact with respect to livelihood and environment so we invest in businesses which are either rural focus or focus towards marginalized communities in urban india but again having said that the thesis is uh, very clear so we will it's investing end of the day and then there is uh, you know impact so it's impact investing which ha- both has to balance out so the way we have looked at uh, things actually is if you are able to find a business model which uh, is solving a societal problem and the business model is woven around a societal problem so that both are inseparable and because you are so solving a societal problem it is also helping you the model is also helping you to solve at least one or two key pain point of the sector if that is not happening you will not be able to scale up or you know raise money in the future so both has to match so to your uh, uh, you know uh, question also with respect to what could be impact if you are doing something to create impact which is not making business sense right you will either lose the impact as you go along or uh, the business will shut down so example you know i might be uh, you know in agri supply chain and i say hey, i am sourcing let's say potatoes from farmers and the price is 10 and i'll pay 12 because i want to have uh, higher impact right that will not work the point is how can you uh, increase the value creation at the farmer level where at the price of 10 where their margin uh, you know was let's say 2 now they can select 12 because the value creation has happened at the farmer level 
So that is how, and now your model is about value creation at the farmer level. So the moment you stop doing value creation at the farmer level, you can't have that impact. Now, because you are create, having a value creation at the farmer level and a higher margin for the farmers, for you to scale up or acceptability of your business also goes up. So it becomes a pull strategy where you don't have to hard sell your product. Okay, okay, got it. Uh, both of these have to be checked. Uh, like you said, either the it's a margin, like let's say a woman founder, or it's solving impact. So, so both have to be checked, or you would also invest in women founders who are doing something which has very minimal impact angle on it. No, so we will not do, uh, or we will not invest in a company which is just women founder and not having, uh, you know, uh, the impact thesis. We will not do it. Uh, just because of you know the founder being women so both have to check for us and uh, your uh, definition of impact here is very clearly marginalized communities like affecting marginalized communities uh, one could say that uh, i'm building a platform for gig workers and it's an impact uh, that i'm creating uh, i'm allowing company like the you know there's squadron and a couple of other uh, platforms which allow companies to outsource work to gig workers uh, for that matter urban company urban clap urban company could also say that they are in the impact space would they qualify as being in the impact space or so uh, uh, for us uh, no i mean it might qualify for an impact space for somebody else so us uh, you know there it's very clear and you know when it comes to gig uh, the whole gig economy or gig work right now uh, this is very similar to, I don't know, Akshay, you would remember, there was this phase when uh, BPO as a sector in India was booming. And every yeah, uh, every kid, yes, every kid was dropping out of college, not doing schooling and going and joining uh, a BPO, good English and, uh, or good Hindi, good communication. You can earn anywhere between 15, 20,000, which was a big money at that time. I believe a, a big part of the population or a generation big part of a generation kind of uh, you know we lost a, a, a huge part of the generation at that time so is uh, when you talk about gig work right uh, because gig work in in a lot of sense is denying uh, workers their rights so you know you did lot of uh, progress with respect to worker rights and you know working conditions and everything and uh, this whole gig economy, which is a reality right now, a lot of those rights are denied. Okay. Again, I can't change the market forces with respect to the gig economy opportunity, which is there. But the company we are supporting it, if they are working with gig workers, then we have to see how are they changing the status quo? Are they ensuring with respect to uh, social security, insurances, you know, everything else apart from just providing that day's job? through a platform because you, then you are doing more harm if you're not taking care of this because a large part of the population is uh, you know is they will not have a, a career right it's all about then livelihood and this livelihood also is not uh, you know constant it is kind of a daily basis uh, livelihood so we'll be doing more harm than good because there'll be a time when a large part of population will be quite frustrated because day in day out you have to do this and deal with the consumer and uh, you know that the, the uh, timelines are so tight you know, the ask is uh, so crazy so and as consumers also i mean we don't want to pay 
we you know we we talk about everything but we don't want to pay so it's also consumer are equally uh, you know we have to blame uh, then the corporates because it's the two forces kind of squeezing a large part of population in between so for us it is more important you know uh, a sector we don't lo- leave a sector saying hey this sector is you know bad we look for companies that can transform the sector so so is so for example waste management right waste management is a sector which is notorious for women exploitation and uh, child labor so does that mean that we don't invest in that sector we have to actually invest in that sector but find companies which are changing the status quo and work with them for longer term to bring about a necessary change uh, in a particular sector and so is gig economy can you uh, give some examples of companies which you have invested in and how they reflect your thesis sure so uh, i'll uh, give you a couple of examples one from the urban side and also from the rural side so from urban side we are invested in a company called miracle couriers uh, they are into last mile for e-commerce players now uh, most of the people who work at miracle couriers are people with disability and most of their uh, delivery person are uh, deaf and mute now if you look at uh, so the thesis which i said right it, the business model has to be around a problem so people with disability they don't get livelihood opportunities they are not hired in corporate now the founder here realized that last mile delivery don't need uh, you know a lot of communication somebody comes to your home rings the bell leaves the packet or hand over the packet to you and goes away there is hardly any communication that happens so why do you need to have uh, why can't you have people who are deaf and mute for this role now so then if you look at the last mile delivery as a sector uh, you know you see that uh, the sector has grown significantly over the years but most of the companies are still losing money you know it's a bleeding business as of now a uh, uh, couple of reasons one is the large reason is attrition rate the you know the sector has grown uh, taken so much money and then you have to all of a sudden have 100 new centers so a lot of poaching happens right and uh, the salaries uh, has been uh, it's not salary it's per day based on the package for delivery boys has been increasing so which is leading to a squeezed uh, margin now our thesis from the sector perspective is uh, in the longer term be it amazon or flipkart there will be product standardization there will be pricing standardization the one thing which will differentiate a flipkart from an amazon is the exp- consumer experience the quality of service that is what will differentiate now when you look at this model so this company uh, have uh, people on their roles so it's not per packet so they have mix of salary and uh, bonus with respect to number of deliveries Uh, the attrition because you have people on the roles and nobody is going to poach people with disability in their because they, their processes are not set up like that so you keep the attrition rate almost to zero when you have uh, such people uh, in your organization now unfortunately uh, these people have not uh, got an opportunity and there is this always you know they are uh, in their own mind uh, you know always forced or they, every day they are trying to prove that you know we are as good as you if not better so they don't cut corners when uh, so you know for example this e-commerce companies they have 10 15 parameters on which every delivery persons are assessed on a daily basis and recognized on a weekly basis 
okay it's so high uh, with respect to the performance and uh, these people don't cut corners unlike you have had your experience i'm pretty sure when you receive a message your package is out of delivery and in the evening it says uh, sorry you were not at home and we missed the delivery and you were very much at home you know <laughs> they just logs in saying because couldn't deliver today they'll not do that so you know those problems get solved so consumer experience for the e-commerce company that you are working is high you are solving the problem of attrition in the sector so for example a center for last mile delivery and that becomes profitable at 1000 deliveries per day just for example this company becomes profitable at 650 deliveries a day so you you know you are profitable at a lower uh, Uh, operation level and they have been profitable uh, since we uh, invested in the company so they are solving a societal problem where uh, you know you are giving opportunity to people with disability and at the same time because of your business model around it you are solving sectoral problem of attrition and quality of service so that's one okay another example from the rural side i'll give you uh, is low cost so this is a company called apm housing finance it's a low cost uh, housing uh, finance company now we we'll see like what happened nbfc uh it's an nbfc hfc yes housing okay. finance housing. Company. oh yeah hfc so, okay yeah okay. yeah so uh, they do uh, like 3 4 lakhs kind of uh, uh, ticket size for housing loan uh, it could be for construction it could be for uh, renovation it could be something else against a property now whether you are doing a 3 lakh loan or a 30 lakh loan uh, for housing your cost of transaction remains the same you have to follow a set process with respect to uh, uh, underwriting and documentation so uh, you know if the lower so which is why you see lot of uh, uh, housing finance companies they usually uh, tend up to go up the value chain with respect to ticket size because that's where you are getting a better margin now so this company is into low cost housing finance but what they do is a lot of their sourcing happens through a network of women who uh, whom they called avyam shakti these are not employed but these are women from the rural and they source transaction for the company from their own vicinity in the villages so they know somebody you know another woman for something they need and they'll connect them with the company and uh, you know uh, get the login done for the application so you are taking out a lot of cost with respect to having loan officers and uh, you know it's uh, for the community and within by the community it's kind of you are getting the uh, proposals so that uh, reduces the cost uh, with respect to your uh, underwriting or operations and then the process uh, remains the same so that despite being at a low margin so one you are giving opportunity for livelihood or additional livelihood to the women in the villages and at the same time you are solving the issue of uh, you know lower margin when you are operating at a lower cost um, they have had phenomenal growth uh, in the last uh, couple of years since we invested and we partially exited from this transaction very recently uh, so that's another example of high growth com- high growth company uh, i was saying that this was a, a management buyout the, the no this was uh, this was a financial buyout so another uh, big investor from novin uh, in, uh, from the us invested in this uh, company called novin and uh, they uh, gave secondary exit as well okay 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 interesting so this is the example of the third bucket i was talking about hmm. 
Right. So here we are solving a societal problem with respect to livelihood in the rural India, additional livelihood for women, and at the same time solving the sectoral problem when you are operating at a low ticket size with respect to your margins. Okay. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, uh, let's take the example of, let's say, financial inclusion and one could... Uh, 10 years back, imagine that the way to achieve financial inclusion is through some sort of socially minded organizations. But then something like a UPI and a PTM has achieved that with a pure for-profit focus, purely commercial organization, solved it at a scale which nobody would have imagined 10 years ago. Um, So, you know, these... uh, Isn't the time very low of this, like... uh, a, like a logistics business which is employing people who are deaf and dumb it doesn't sound like it could become big i mean the, the time itself seems low i mean how many deaf and dumb people would there be whom they could employ what happens when they hit a limit and you know i mean as opposed to like like say a, a shadow facts kind of a platform which also does last mile uh, them starting an initiative where they start onboarding deaf and dumb people, uh, you know, or like, I, you know, as as part of the CSR initiatives, companies do stuff like that. Uh, like, like, so, so I'm just wondering that, you know, are, are these really uh, scalable businesses? So uh, a couple of points there, uh, Akshay. One, uh, so if you look at just the population of uh, people who are deaf and mute in India, that's 2% of the population. Right? That itself is a huge uh, number if you consider. Not not everybody will, uh, will be employed by the company, I understand. But see, uh, it's all about uh, uh, inclusivity and diversity. So if you are able to grow to a certain level uh, by doing this, and then you kind of start, you need to be diversified as well. So then you need to bring in, uh, you know, people who might not be deaf and mute and mix and match so that the whole ecosystem is created. So it could be uh, other way around where you have a company, which is what now, you know, corporates are looking at, where you have created such a huge company with respect to not being inclusive. Now, whatever you do with respect to inclusive, that is, you know, not even 0.1% of your workforce, right? Here, what we have started doing uh, is uh, we started being more inclusive and now you have people who are not deaf and mute and then the organization is also growing. So it's both the ends uh, which we are solving. At the same time, when uh, a center is run, so that has other disabilities. There, you know, uh, pe- you know, you would see women employed in the centers who have all sort of other disabilities. So you kind of increase uh, uh, TAM, as you are saying, with respect to workforce. Uh, so one is that not everything needs to be very big. Right? Mm. So And which is where our uh, underwriting for these type of companies is. They might become big, they may not. But if they are cash flow positive, uh, you have created an organization which is slowly and gradually, you know, uh, create a lot of impact. It will also kind of showcase how you can uh, think differently. We get an exit through management buyout and the founder continue to do good job. It might take 10 years, it might take 20 years, right? So it's also kind of how do you seed uh, something uh, uh, sustainably, which can have a very high impact longer term. As an investor, that's our job, right? How to help seed that uh, 
particular uh, opportunity and not uh, and which is why I say you know that we are not a vc type of play not everything needs to be very big in five years you know something we have seeded today if it becomes very big in 50 years i think our job is done i understand yeah i was looking at it through a vc lens uh, as opposed to a pe lens is how you're looking at it i got it okay 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 uh so you know this uh fund which you're currently raising of 70 million you said right yeah 75 75 million okay uh what is the current status how much have you raised so far and what kind of uh, companies are you looking at and how, how do you source uh, good quality uh, impact startups or impact focused startups so uh, we are uh, at a stage where the dd from uh, uh, prospective lps have started we are uh, targeting to have a first close around 40 million uh, by first quarter of next year uh, our existing investor dggf dutch good growth fund uh, they are on board there are a few other dfis who are doing due diligence few foundations uh, and uh, indian dfis so we are we are pretty sure we will be able to achieve 35 40 ish kind of number for the first close uh, with respect to uh, sourcing of the transaction so we have been very uh, cognizant when we source deals we try to stay away from uh, the investment banking network uh, that usually exists because you know it's, it's the same type of deals that you receive they don't distinguish you know what's your thesis with respect to how you think so you end up getting a lot of vc type of transaction in our first portfolio or first fund we don't have a single company which has come through through an investment banker so we source a lot through our proprietary network it could be our founders uh, lawyers uh, we work with other advisors we go out in the market and tell people hey this is what we are looking for so for portfolio construction also we try to have a uh, we some understanding what we will do for example I'll tell you uh, financial institu- uh, inclusion. So we want to uh, do uh, something around uh, another uh, opportunity around housing finance. We want to do something around uh, micro enterprise lending. So that's another area we are trying to source ourselves. So we do research and we find companies, and we don't have any issue writing to to, to them saying, "Hey, this is an interesting model, and uh, we are going to explore if you are raising money." Similarly. We know on the waste management side, we are going to get some uh, exposure, uh, be it uh, electronic waste uh, is one area that we would like to explore. So we have, you know, uh, those uh, preferences and we try to proactively source uh, transaction from the market. Some of the deals, uh, interesting deals that we are looking at, apart from these, uh, one, we are looking at a company which is uh, into uh, skilling, training, placement of uh, people with disability. So they help corporate uh, become more inclusive and diversified and uh, they identify people, train, and they also keep the people in their roles as an outsource uh, team. Once corporates see that, hey, everything is working fine, they can bring them in-house. That becomes a recruitment process then. Again, would it be a very huge company? No. But again, these are something which is helping if they are able to help 100 corporates, 200 corporates to become inclusive the systematic change that you have brought it in the sector will be high. This will be again a cash flow type of underwriting. Would there be a strategic buyer tomorrow come, coming and buying us or not necessarily? Would we be able to do a management buyout? Definitely. right? 
so a lot of these type of transaction also we are looking at uh, which are working for systematic change and we understand that will take a lot of time okay uh, i understand uh, my last question to you uh, you know do you have any advice for a founder who may have an idea to do something in the impact space uh, you know any advice for how she should think about building uh, what stage should she come to someone like uh, you you know should she come to you once there's already some revenue and you know how should she navigate that zero to one journey and yeah see uh, for us uh, we typically come in uh, after uh, a year or two years of operations uh, you know we are not a seed investor we are post seed investor where the traction for the business uh, is proven and you are looking for early growth capital you may may not be profitable what kind of top line like say couple of lakhs per month kind of revenue so or usually more? i would say 10 10ish type of uh, lakhs of revenue per month okay so we because see our minimum check is uh, four cross uh, is what we write as a minimum check size so at least having a crore or two of revenue helps uh, with with respect to valuation and you know uh, uh, dilution otherwise it becomes a challenging task if we were we had the ability to do below 4 then you know uh, or there are investors uh, in the impact space also who does below 4 so uh, for them uh, you know uh, you can go there but for us it is a couple of uh, crore of revenue uh, the advice which i'll give uh, is uh, you know with respect to how you are thinking about the business because we have seen lot of companies as i was saying when you need to understand what is the innovation in the business model technology is required everywhere don't make the technology the hero you know the hero has to be your uh, innovative business model which is woven around a problem and it should be inseparable if you are trying to do anything which don't make business sense with respect to impact you will lose uh, either of the two and uh, and also uh, think of uh, how is this model solving uh, at least one key pain point of the sector otherwise scalability uh, is going to be a issue so these things need to be uh, put in place uh, rightly with respect to investing there a lot of companies i'll tell you come to us and saying hey you are an impact investor why do you talk about Uh, valuation or return or exit that's another area you need to understand it's investing end of the day and uh, don't have a story which is just impact or don't have a story which is just financial return it's all about how you can balance the two and that brings us to the end of this conversation i want to ask you for a favor now did you like listening to this show i'd love to hear your feedback about it do you have your own startup ideas i'd love to hear them do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in this show i'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests write to me at ad@thepodium.in at that's ad@thepodium.in at